Hello and welcome to the Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Cherry Reynard, and with me today are Daniel Casali, Chief Investment Strategist, and Ben Seeger-Scott, Head of Multi-Asset Funds. We'll be providing an update on global financial markets and the economy. Welcome, Ben. Welcome, Daniel. A quick update. As many of you will know, having merged our businesses into one, Tilney and Smith & Williamson will soon rebrand as Evelyn Partners. We aim to draw on the new firm's combined expertise to offer the best of everything we do, including investment commentary and insights. That means we'll be launching a new Evelyn Partners investment podcast featuring Daniel, Ben and others focusing on stock markets, the world economy and anything else that's informing the way we run portfolios. We're recording the podcast from our respective homes and offices today on Wednesday, the 20th of April, 2022. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Okay, Ben, Daniel, welcome. Um, if we could start with the ups and downs in stock markets, and there's there's been a, quite a few of those recently. Initially, it looked like a recovery was in progress, only for markets to slide again over the past couple of weeks. Ben, what's your view on markets today? You know, what's what's really driving sentiment? Well, I think as always, there's there's lots lots of things going on. One needs to look at both the factors, how that's getting transmitted into the markets, and of course, you then get these feedback loops between what's happening in markets, the sentiment, then that sentiment drives drives market changes. So um, lots to think about. There is, of course, the backdrop uh, of the war uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, and that's playing on people's mind, not just uh, the ongoing terrible humanitarian crisis there, but also the scope for further sanctions, what may happen, happen with global energy supplies. That's clearly a factor ticking on in the background. There's also a lot of fundamental points to to think about too. In particular, at the moment, uh, the market, I think, is really grappling with a lot of the, the the fundamentals that we started talking about last year. That is the withdrawal post-COVID of monetary and fiscal stimulus. Some of that has turned into um, what what is likely to be active policy tightening in terms of monetary policy. But against that. The market's also wrestling with some of the perceived strengths, consumer confidence, business resilience. All of that's positive. Then that feeds back. You've got these positive factors. Sometimes that worries makes people worry a little bit more uh, about some of those inflation concerns. So I think really what we've seen over the last month or so is the market flip-flopping. Uh, there's, there's a lot of careful bounces to be had. And it seems the market... At one point, almost focused on the positive fundamentals, at some stages focusing more on the consequences down the line. I think now we have a bit less uh, liquidity and stimulus floating around. It's just driving some of these, some of these flip-flopping behaviours. Okay, thanks, Ben. And uh, are there any sectors that have seen more volatility than others? Well, I think if, if one focuses in particularly on, on what happened in March, we saw an early dip followed 
by a broad sector rebound. And that was really pretty broad based. But after that, we saw some differentiation. So an aggregate level, the market sort of fell, rebounded and then dipped back. But that was driven by some of the, the differences in sectors. And what one means by volatility probably depends really on, on the flavour of volatility you're, you're talking about. What we generally saw is this continuation of the theme we've seen throughout this, this year, some of the sector rotation from the previous laggards are now becoming a little bit more dominant and some of those early winners giving way a, a little bit. Energy has continued to push higher. Now, in a sense, that that's volatile because it's going up quite sharply, um, but it's at least trending up in, in a relatively straight line. What has been particularly volatile over the last few weeks are those areas where, where we've seen just a small bounce uh, against the, the recent trend, but really resuming that that slightly negative trend. IT, consumer discretionary, all of those had this mid-month bounce. And it's those areas that have, have, have sort of subsequently fallen back, and that's driven the aggregate level of, of markets down. Um, and, and areas that have been actually less volatile, materials has been not too volatile. That's unusual. Materials, along with energy, tend to be some of your more volatile parts of the market. Actually, that's been relatively quiet over the last few weeks. And of course, the traditional areas healthcare, utilities and consumer staples continue to tick along as we expect from these lower volatility parts of the market. Great, thanks, Ben. Um, and Daniel, bringing you in here, we've had, we've had a drip drip of um, sort of economic data, but not all of it currently reflects um, the situation in Ukraine. I mean, in your view, to what extent is the market's kind of nervousness justified by the economic picture and outlook? Well, quite simply, market jitters are justified. I mean, after all, well, we have an ongoing war in Ukraine involving Russia, nuclear power, multi-decade highs in inflation uh, and rising interest rates. However, as Ben said, uh, looking at the fundamentals, it's important to recognise uh, that the global economy is in a mid-business cycle, which historically uh, has been constructive for positive absolute equity returns. Fundamentally, fairly solid uh, economic growth supports forward company earnings. And that's because Corporates have considerable pricing power to raise prices to mitigate rising input costs uh, from wages uh, and also uh, from rise, rising energy costs. And this has boosted profit margins in this high inflationary environment. And despite the uh, rising cost of living, households still have considerable purchasing power to drive sales growth. It is this combination of solid profit margins and sales growth that has led to the MSCI All Country World Index, their earnings per share. Uh, for 2022 has accelerated, believe it or not, to 10% uh, currently from 7% at the end of last year. However, saying that, there is still plenty of uncertainty over the inflation outlook and geopolitical risk is a key concern for stocks. Should inflation continue to accelerate, there is a risk that eventually consumers hold back on spending and or central banks become increasingly more hawkish on uh, monetary policy. Geopolitical risk, while elevated, may be peaking. There are elements for a ceasefire agreement between Russia and Ukraine. doesn't look likely at the moment. But Ukraine no longer seeks NATO membership. Uh, moreover, we are seeing that energy, both natural gas and crude oil, uh, prices seem to have peaked for the moment. Gas certainly has come down quite a bit. Great. Thank you, Daniel. Um, let's turn our attention to fixed income markets, if we could, which have also seen a, quite a lot of activity recently. I mean, we've there was an inversion in the yield curve. And um, I, read, I read yesterday that real yields are on the brink of positive 
territory for the first time since 2020. Um, ben, what's your interpretation of the recent shifts in the in the bond market and the implications for investors? Well, fixed income and, and bond markets have, have been really exciting, and it's been you know over a decade since we've really been able to to say that. Uh, and I tell you, it, it continues a theme that we've been talking about for the last sort of eighteen months or so. And what you need to really think about here is is two things. It's interest rate and interest rate expectations, but also inflation. And this is why we very often talk about real yields, real returns. So real yield is the yield after uh, accounting for inflation. And we've generally been avoiding interest rate sensitivity for, for quite a long time now. And that's when rates were, were very low. Inflation expectations were pretty low too. But a lot of that is now starting to change. I think one of the key factors that, that's driven particularly the most recent changes is this sense that the, the Greenspan put is over. And the Greenspan put is this idea that's, that's been in the markets for a long time. Any time you see wobbles in the markets, the central bank rides to the rescue. And this is something that we've become particularly used to over the last decade. Any wobble, the central bank cuts rates, pumps money in which one can do when inflation is low. But as it's ticked up, that's really limited central banks' room to manoeuvre. And I think now markets are finally getting this sense that perhaps the, the, the era of near zero interest rates and very low inflation that's pervaded for the last decade or so, maybe that's over. And now uh, markets, are, I think, are really adjusting to, to that need. How does one invest in inflationary environment and where interest rates are, are above meaningfully above zero. And in particular as well, it's worth remembering, it's not just interest rates, the central banks are now looking to sort of fast track their exit for, from their QE and money printing programs, actively reversing that at quite an accelerated uh, pace. And what that really means uh, for investors, I think, increasingly one has to think about real returns and that real return after the effect of inflation, which isn't something that investors have really had to think about in recent years. Obviously, um, yields have moved really quite a long way in quite a short space of time. I mean, are you starting to see value emerging in fixed income? Well, uh, you're exactly right. Yields have moved at an incredible rate. If one just looks at the US 10-year Treasury yield, a pretty standard benchmark measure, that was a historic low of 0.5% in July 2020. And now as we look at around... 2.75. Um, and this change in yield is one of the biggest rises we've seen in more than 20 years, very, very fast in the broader context. And I think what we're seeing is this uh, before we had rates that really did look too low on a, on a long term basis. And there was a bit of a disconnect between what's priced in the markets and where central banks are, and where central banks were pricing. Some of that disconnect has, has resolved and that does add some potential opportunities, particularly now we've got you know, a couple of percentage points buffer between what, what may be a zero lower bound. Now, what I would say is that doesn't mean that yields can't rise further. A couple of things to, to keep in mind, it does cut out back that sort of balance point we made earlier. Firstly, although obviously yields are, are higher, so is inflation. And once one accounts for inflation, um, obviously at the moment inflation is very high, that means that you know if you look on that basis, real yields are still quite negative. But I think for bonds, it's more important to look into the medium term. And actually, a yield of you know, particularly on the US, two point seven five, isn't that 
materially different from where inflation expectations are. So you're not getting, even though you're getting uh, a, a reasonable yield in absolute terms, once you account for inflation, it, it's perhaps not quite that attractive. Now, to some investors that just want not a deeply negative real return, but happy just to sort of try and preserve pricing power, that could be attractive. But those that want meaningful real returns, they're still likely to, to seek other asset classes to achieve that. Um, we're also seeing some money flows from bond investors that have been investing quite a lot in government bonds historically, starting to unwind some of those positions. That's partly what's driving part of the sell-off. And there's still further that can be gone on that. And there is a sort of tangential point. Some of the, the, the larger economies around the world, actually, it's, it's one of the areas that, that what we're seeing in, in between uh, Russia and Ukraine having an impact in, in broader markets. If you're a major holder of US treasuries, the likes of China and Saudi Arabia, and they see the sanctions imposed on Russia's central banks, uh, or central bank, sorry, and the freezing of those assets, maybe that would will encourage some of these countries to try and diversify away just from US treasuries to holding a broader basket. So there are still reasons um, that, that, that yields could, could rise further. But I think if you're looking in terms of a multi-asset portfolio, that's certainly where I where I think about um, fixed income has gone from looking distinctly unattractive um, to having pockets of value. But that does come from from a very low base overall. And the reason I consider it for, for a multi-asset portfolio, now that these government bonds are off zero, even if they just move sideways, now you are clipping a, a reasonable uh, coupon from effectively close to zero before. So you're getting a reasonable coupon and they can also provide a little bit of, of shock absorption, both against the, the current things we're worrying about, you know, the, the sort of known unknowns, but also the unknown unknowns. Markets are subject to, to ongoing risks and just having something in the portfolio that can add some buffering from a multi-asset point of view, I think that, that makes them attractive. And there are also parts of fixed income that can be a bit more return-seeking. So continue to favour exposure to, to corporate bonds. There we try and favour low duration, which means they have low interest rate sensitivity. There you're getting a little bit more return uh, looking at the credit worthiness of the companies they invest in. So some, some attractive potential there as well. Great. Thank you, Ben. Now, commodity markets have assumed real importance um, as the Ukraine crisis has, has hit. And obviously, you know, with, with consequent knock-on effects on inflation. Um, ben, again, I, I wonder if we could start with you, just with a quick, a quick look at whether there's any stability returning to commodity markets or whether that will really take you know, some resolution in the Ukraine crisis that just isn't there at the moment? Uh, I, I think commodity markets have always been uh, pretty volatile. They're driven by supply and demand factors. And actually, commodities as a broad asset class is quite difficult to get exposure to. Rather than just looking at the spot prices, which is the price paid right now, that's what the news tends to focus on. If you are looking to invest, you tend to be looking at futures, investing in the commodity for a potential return at some future date. It can get fairly complicated and it can be a difficult area to, to, to invest in meaningfully. Um, and in terms of supply and demand, those are the driving factors for this market. Events in Ukraine have largely focused on the supply side. And here we're really thinking particularly about energy the risk to those supplies. And we're seeing 
a little bit of, of stability coming through. Effectively, there is a sort of muddle through um, norm that started to uh, emerge. I think on the short term, therefore, that's driving some near-term-ish stability. Oil hovering a little above $100 a barrel, but well below some of the areas it was spiking to before. Some of the medium-term risks, though, are more on the demand side. Um, there are some risks in Europe, particularly of a recession, if uh, if there are any further disruptions to, to energy, uh, and that would lead to, to a collapse potentially in demand. More broadly, if we do have a, a recession further out on the horizon, if people start to worry about that, that could impact demand as well. So there is a sort of balance, um, balance between the two. Um, but I think for now, we are seeing, seeing this norm um, establish itself a little bit of, of stability. But you know, energy prices in particular tend to drive a lot of what happens in commodities, and they can be very volatile not just Ukraine and Russia, we have this uh, around COVID, uh, the onset of COVID as well. Commodity markets are, are very volatile. So even the current muddle through uh, scenario that's been established, there's very little certainty that that will persist as likely to drive this source of driving volatility, I'd say, for the foreseeable. Okay, thanks. And, and Daniel, can we get the sort of economic perspective on that? So to what extent are higher energy and food prices being felt in economic statistics or, or, or is that still kind of waiting to filter through? Well, it depends which country you're looking at. Uh, there are signs that inflation could be peaking, at least in the short term in the US, uh, for three reasons. First, the US March core, uh, which excludes food and energy, monthly CPI inflation came in slightly below economist expectations. Second, some of the upward drivers inflation over the past year had slowed, including used car prices, while rental inflation has at least stabilised. And third, the high base effects comparison from last year becomes more favourable for the inflation outlook in the US from April uh, onwards. Elsewhere in the world, sensitivity to supply chain disruption and dependence on Russian energy will probably mean that Eurozone inflation is set to peak in the second quarter, uh, as indicated by the consensus of economist surveys uh, on Bloomberg. UK CPI inflation is also expected to peak in this second quarter by the consensus. However, saying that, given that the energy cap has already been raised by 50%, uh, in April, there is a risk that UK CPI inflation could actually peak later in the year. I think a bigger risk here for markets is not necessarily the rate of inflation, but the impact of rising food prices and social stability, uh, as what happened during the Arab Spring in 2010 and 2011. The risk has been compounded, of course, as Ben was saying, by the Russian inflation, uh, invasion and the resulting sanctions from both the West on Russia and Russian sanctions on fertilised exports to so-called unfriendly countries. Uh, considering that Russia and Ukraine combined account for 28% of uh, global wheat exports. There is a real risk here that rapidly rising food prices could potentially lead to violent protests somewhere in the world. And this could weigh down on investor sentiment in equities. Thanks, Daniel. And I mean, the Eurozone has been at the centre of this commodity turmoil, uh, largely because of its uh, dependency on um, Russian supply. Um, does that make it a no-go zone for investors or um, or do you think it can work through some of these problems? No, I mean, it looks like a no-man's land at the moment, but uh, we still see opportunities in the Eurozone. Clearly, Eurozone stocks have been adversely affected by the region's close proximity to the war in the Ukraine, but also due to its dependencies on Russian energy and financial links that we discussed earlier. 
To understand what impact that will have on the Eurozone economy and markets, we have modelled two scenarios to understand the potential implications for the Eurozone. In our base case scenario, which assumes stabilising energy prices and limited contagion to the Eurozone banking system, real GDP growth comes in roughly around 3.1% for 2022. Uh, That's almost about a percentage point lower than the pre-invasion estimate uh, of 3.9% from the IMF. Under the downside scenario, where energy prices continue to rise and financing conditions weaken, GDP growth still grows by a respectable 1.9% this year. However, the Eurozone may enter a technical recession. That's two quarters of negative growth in the second half of this year as economic momentum deteriorates. So provided that the region grows by around 3% or so in real terms under our base case, then this is still a conducive environment for Eurozone stocks, and particularly as they look undemanding. So for example, if we look at the MSCI Europe XUK price to earnings ratio, and that's a valuation measure, it's trading on 15 times one one-year forward earnings, which is down from 19 times in July 2020. And a higher PE ratio implies a more expensive market and vice versa. So Euro- Eurozone has become cheaper in this environment. So with this growth backdrop, uh, we think there are some opportunities within there. Okay, great. And now the, um, I suppose this is the, the million-dollar question that central banks and, and everybody are, are asking themselves. But um, Daniel, in, in your view, do you think inflation is about to peak um, sort of over the next few months or, you know, could this really, you know, it keeps coming in ahead of expectations, you know, do you think it's really got further to go from here? I think it's really the trillion dollar answer, uh, question, uh, Jerry. Uh, well, CPI inflation could well top out this year, certainly in the US, and that, that's the supply chain disruption eases and the energy and food prices stabilise at least. However, inflation could well pick up again uh, in 2023, and that's really because of the magnitude of the pandemic policy response globally over the last few years. This has given a significant boost to the supply of money circulating around the global financial system. Much of that capital has ended up in driving up asset prices, that's equities and property. However, much of that money is still in the hands of consumers is yet to be spent. So as economies are opened up after the pandemic, uh, this remains a source of inflation. Moreover, the Fed has changed its monetary policy back in 2020 to adopt this average inflation targeting. So that basically means that the Fed is behind the curve in tackling inflation. And we're now seeing this now uh, where the Fed is trying to move ahead and raise interest rates this year. I think the key metric to watch for higher future inflation is really in wages. If if workers secure higher and higher wage rates, then this could potentially lead to a wage inflation spiral similar to what we saw in the 1970s. So keep an eye on uh, wages. Another thing to look out for is uh, consumer inflation expectations. If inflation becomes de-anchored, that could mean that consumers bring forward uh, expenditure because they see that prices will rise in the future. So I think those are two key things we need to look out for, which is the wage rates, which is a labour cost inflation, uh, and also consumer inflation expectations, whether inflation is actually anchored down or not. Um, Great. Okay, if we could turn to the UK now. Um, Now, the March budget wasn't wasn't brilliantly received um and certainly the cost of living crisis is starting to bite um ben when you look at this as a whole i mean where do you stand on the uk from an investment point of view uh, I, I think the uk has a lot of interesting investment characteristics and i think there's uh, as always there is a, a careful balance to get between how much one invests in the uk 
and the rest of the world. So there is a sort of diversification element that each investor sort of needs to ask themselves. But even within the UK, I think there's there is uh, there's different ways to invest in the UK. Now, if one takes the, the UK very broadly, it tends to be very international. If you look at the, a market cap weighted index, it tends to be dominated by companies that have a lot of international earnings. That means it's much more of a, a, a geared play on, on the global economy. In a sense, there's a lot of energy, materials, financials in there. And it's a, and it can be attractive for, from that point of view as well, particularly given its value-esque sort of characteristics. Value's been out of favour for quite a while. The UK has a lot of those types of stocks, so it may well play a little bit of, of catch-up at that level. And that's very much about the world view rather than the domestic UK economy. Uh, if you want more of a domestic play, obviously there are particular companies you can buy. It tends to be that those more medium and small-sized companies are a little bit more geared towards the UK domestically, where maybe there are a few challenges starting starting to come in. But again, that's where from an investment point of view, you need to make sure that you either have very good stock selection skills yourself or uh, are using a fund manager or investment manager that can pick those. So I think there are certainly pockets of value in, in UK domestically, but more broadly, it's that value type exposure that you get from the international stocks in the UK that can make it an attractive place to, to invest as well. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, and Daniel, from the, from the economic point of view, the UK had been improving prior to the Ukraine crisis, and um, GDP data have been have been quite encouraging. Uh, but there was a pretty um, dramatic revision from the IMF in in the growth forecast uh, for the UK yesterday. Um, where do you sit? Do you think the UK economy can weather this particular storm? Well, the short answer is yes, but you probably need an umbrella. Uh, starting on a positive note, uh, UK GDP and the unemployment rate both returned to pre-crisis levels uh, at the start of this year. Uh, we're also expecting a record year for business investment, as we expect the super deduction, which runs to the end of this year, allows companies to claim back on tax for plant and machinery investments. This will bring forward planned uh, investments. Uh, but despite the optimistic outlook for uh, fixed investment, the outlook for UK consumers is far more challenging. We've already talked about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how this pushed up energy prices. Uh, and we're expecting consumer price inflation to peak later this year, uh, which will reduce consumer uh, purchasing power a little bit. And then you throw in the national insurance hike um, and also the fact that interest rates are rising and it's going to be a difficult uh, year for uh, UK consumers. Uh, the Office of Budget Responsibility, they've crunched the numbers on this and they now expect disposable income to fall by 2.2% in the next 12 months, which is uh, the largest fall on record. So we've got to recognise that. Uh, as one expects, there will be uh, economic growth coming through and we still expect the slowdown to happen in the second half of this year. But we're still expecting the UK to post positive growth this year. This is a key uh, point to note. Uh, and in this environment, uh, we think you probably want typically more defensive value areas, which should perform better in the UK. And as Ben said, because of their overseas earnings, uh, these should perform a little bit better than some of the cyclical sectors in the coming uh, six to 12 months. Great. And then um, just finally, I wondered if we could round off with a with kind of an overall view from both of you on the outlook for the global economy and stock markets. So, Ben, I, I wonder if you could start with uh, talking about how you're feeling about the prospects for stock markets. Well, I, I think 
we've uh, we've gone through an era where there's been a lot of stimulus driving markets and as that's being withdrawn it is forcing uh, equities to, to stand on their own two feet but there's still plenty of scope uh, for them to continue doing that i think we're likely to see some uh, continuation of the rotations that we've seen previous winners maybe giving way to some of the, the previous laggards so that's probably a more of a uh, a rotation within equity rather than a sort of broader view now, there are some risks starting to gather on the horizon, uh, likely to fuel a little bit more volatility. And what I would say, you know, no one knows when the, when the next market crash is is going to happen. The one, one of the reasons that one invests in equities over the long term, it does t- tend to have a little bit more uh, return potential, but that higher return potential comes with, with higher risk. So I still think... The outlook is, is is pretty decent, but there are some bumps along the road. Make sure that you're investing in line with with your appropriate risk profile, and I think selection is going to be key. Great, and then Daniel, how optimistic are you about the global economy in the next six months? Well, I mean, our overall view in the global economy is it's still likely to grow. Uh, the IMF yesterday came out with their forecast for 3.6% this year, which is a decent rate of growth, uh, both for this year and also for 2023. Uh, so overall, this gives a generally a positive outlook for equities. We still think that equities can deliver better returns than bonds. And I think it's this combination, which I've talked about, elevated profit margins, that's crucial. And fairly solid, decent economic growth, uh, supported by the relatively healthy household and business incomes and balance sheets, and also the pent-up demand from opening up post the pandemic. We think that this is enough to keep uh, the economies going. And as I said earlier, we're still in this sort of mid-business cycle. So we probably should expect more capital to move out of bonds and into equities going forward. So overall, the key message from from me really is uh, equities still to outperform bonds. Great. Okay. Thank you, Ben and Daniel, for those thoughts today. Um, Some really useful insights there at an uncertain moment for investors. Um, Please watch this space for more details. And if you'd like to find out more about our rebrand to Evelyn Partners, please visit evelyn.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope to see you again next time.